Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Francis Osborne. Francis is the Managing Director of Pristine Scotland Limited, a hygiene and cleaning services provider specialising in commercial cleaning, contract cleaning, builder cleans, end of tenancy cleans, deep cleans and other regular cleaning schedules. Um, Francis, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. That's not a problem. Thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership on this programme and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel that it's appropriate that we start there. Um, It has been, I'm sure you'll agree, one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life, really. Um, But for yourselves in a business sense, just how has it affected you and your operations? Yes, it's had a massive, massive impact on our, our business from basically the, the domestic side of the market instantly shut down as of the 23rd of March when we actually were seeing the biggest boom in our business up until that point. Um, the house market was, was increasing, the commercial work was coming on and in droves. So it, it basically kind of ground us to a halt you know, with that news and again, the, the procedures that we had to sort of follow with the uncertainty of how we were going to you know, even go into it let alone come out of it was you know was a daunting task at least you know it's, it's not been seen since the second world war you know the, the actual type of unavailability of, of, of anything really you know so again we're, we're, we're feeding off scraps and very limited information as to how to to sort of deal with it exactly right um there is a lot of guidelines out there which do often change at short notice and sometimes aren't necessarily clear i think that is something that industry has really been pointing out a lot over the uh, the last few months um over the course of the uh, the next year or so though as hopefully um within maybe one or two years time covid19 is no longer an issue and we do have a working vaccine to combat the virus do you think that some features of the lockdown period that are now coming into place in business could become permanent fixtures in the way that we operate in the uk anyway I definitely agree. I mean, obviously, from a health and safety point of view, that's now become to the, well, it's been pushed to the fore. And obviously, how staff manage in and out of properties, and obviously how they conduct themselves around each of the premises and things like that. You know, personal hygiene, you know, has was always sort of kind of part and parcel of everyday sort of operations, but it's become more important and more paramount now that obviously people look after that side of the of of the property and the, the business itself as well. So, yeah, definitely, I definitely see that there's things that, that will be here to stay. Mm, that's certainly very interesting uh, going forward, and it will be um, fascinating to keep an eye on what elements of the lockdown period will certainly be uh, persisting and staying with us. Um, as for your own personal experience of crisis management during this time, if we call it that, would you say there's anything that this whole experience has taught you as you've sort of adapted to this new reality? Yeah, we, we actually were... were quite lucky in the regards to that our business wasn't sort of um, office-based. We managed to make our, our business kind of remote and mobile um, so that we could fluid with the business and, and sort of pivot as we needed. But obviously there's lots of businesses out with my own that basically they were, they were static and don't do don't have any sort of online presence or pretty much, you know, they, they work from a fixed location and a fixed property. 
Whereas now they all need to be working from more more remotely. And obviously the, going forward, the, the bit that kind of sticks out is the working life balance now is probably the key element now because people can work from home or work from remote premises, which again helps a lot of businesses probably survive and come out of this with a bit more, you know, sort of intact than, than what they had previously, you know. So again, unfortunately the city centres will suffer you know, with all the, the the property that's there, but again, mm. more businesses would need to be more agile and be able to to, to basically be more cautious about their spend um, going forward. That's you know, again, that, that I don't know whether that is something that they're going to be looking at, but that's something you need to look at and and probably pay more attention to. You know, what's coming in versus what's going out as well. It is going to be an interesting discussion over the next year, isn't it, about our working yeah. practices? Because there are a lot of businesses that will probably be thinking, well, we don't necessarily need an office premises for how we work. But for others, there's also the balance of sort of the mental health and well-being side of things and the benefits of having a workplace where people can go in and sort of have that human interaction, as it were. Um, from your own point of view, uh, Francis, just how important do you see mental health being in leadership yourself, both in terms of safeguarding that of people around you, but also your own as well? Because it's easy to forget that in the hectic world of running a business, even in the everyday, it can sometimes get a bit much, let alone at a time like this. Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the way we've operated the business and since we come back from furlough, health and safety and obviously mental awareness has, has been key. I mean, we've done risk assessments with all of our customers and all of the staff and that, this has been a sort of ongoing basis. Um, we've put sort of temperature readers and things like that. There's loads of control mechanisms we've put in place to protect the customer and the staff and more so the staff. The management, fortunately, are, are, are quite robust. But as you say, going forward, this change of, of processes continually. You know, we don't seem to come out of one sort of process and then we're back into another change of circumstances or change of rules or amendments of rules. And we and, and that has its, its mental toll on you because you're you can constantly being dragged back when you're trying to make strides forwards and trying to make those events kind of for me personally it has been quite traumatic. Um because you're thinking not only for yourself but the staff and obviously the business. I mean, I had a chat today with one of our clients. Mm. And again, he's, he's pretty much said that he's had to take his business strategy back to day one when he when he started it way back 10 years ago. You know, so again, we're we're almost at that same same point as well, where it's, it's, it's small stepping stones. But again, you're mentally scarred that you're not willing to... Well, some people are risk-averse. Um, we're very risk-aware now because you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what the next lockdown period is going to be or what impact it has on the business or or even your customers for that point you know because again obviously the world is changing and not everybody's business unfortunately has been able to survive or get the sufficient help that it needs to, to recover or even just sort of limp along until we, we have a bit more understanding whether it's a vaccine or whatever it may be but as I say it's it, mentally it, it does take its toll on you and it is, it is one of the main factors but again at this moment in time it's not really something that you, that you can sit back and say, do you know what, I'm suffering. It, you know, it, it, you need to push forward. And, and again, that, that may manifest itself later on down the line. But at this moment in time, it's, you know, it's just another business challenge for me personally. 
I think it is an extremely valid point that businesses do certainly have to be reactive. I think that you're absolutely right um, with regards to uh, to that going forward because guidelines and circumstances can change so, so quickly at such short notice. So the ability of leaders to do just that has certainly been something that has had to be sort of tested, as I've said, during this uh, period of time. And from your own experience, having worked in business for quite some time, uh, Francis, um, as well as having negotiated a crisis like this thus far, just for those younger generations of listeners that might be sort of aspiring to make it in business for themselves. What advice would you have to give them to really sort of get them on the road to similar success? I think you, you've got to have the determination, I think, to, to basically succeed regardless. It's not, it's not an easy task. And you, you and it, it basically it's a 24-7 hour job. But it's not that you take on your own business. But again, if, if there's people who are doing who have been more successful recently, the younger generations are, are more online and more, they, they have less ownership on property and things like that. So the, the risk is far less, but the, the rewards are far higher. But at the same time, they have to understand that not, it's not going to come to them. They, they need to work at it. But now is actually one of the best opportunities for people to get into business because there are so many opportunities out there You know that they, they can probably help more businesses, you know, the, the older sort of generation that don't have technology, the younger generation have, have basically got leaps and bounds to kind of get on that. I'm going to say bandwagon because there's, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there that they should feel inspired that they could go and do a, a good job and obviously make a, a business from next to nothing quite quickly. Um, and that, that's kind of, that's hope, you know, for, for where we are. But again, they just need to understand not, not everything will be an overnight success. It does take a bit of time to get to where you need to be. And lastly, just because I am conscious that we are running short of time on the programme today, I do want to talk about the future just before we do wrap things up on uh, the show. Um, we understand that over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, we are going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working. But um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at your business over the course of this next 12 months as we are uh, grappling with the new normal? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year? We hopefully where we're at at the moment. We've actually been quite successful in securing quite a piece of pieces of work recently, and we're moving to sort of do more public contracts and tendering for that that type of work because that's where we see ourselves. But at the same time, we have had made positive strides. I mean, we've taken on something like fifteen to twenty new businesses um, who are all needing support. But at the same time, we're working cohesively together and making sure that we we all go forward. So we're helping them meet these criteria, but we, we do think we will almost double what we're turning over just now. We do see light at the end of the tunnel, um, and we, we are sort of making those strides just now. So we're also kind of getting assistance from the government and the, the councils, to, the grants and stuff like that, to, to encourage us to, to, to grow, and that that's a good thing. So we've already recruited the other three staff, and we're looking to recruit, recruit another five going forward. So yeah, we are we are looking positive. We'll certainly be keeping an eye on how things are getting on over the uh, the next few months for yourselves, Francis. I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme with us this afternoon. And most importantly, um, as we do sort of hopefully uh, look at uh, touching base um, again in future, um, I would, as I say, like to uh, welcome you onto the show um, at some point in the uh, the next year just to see how things are coming along in uh, the respect that you've outlined there. Yeah, no, that'd be perfect. And hopefully it, it will all be positive news. 
It's been wonderful. I've really, really enjoyed your company on the programme this afternoon, Francis, for sure. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on in the world, because there are still a great many different ways in which this pandemic could pan out. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory in the white way from here on in. No, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time as well and having me on the show. Much appreciated and look forward to speaking to you in the future. I have to say I'd reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in this afternoon as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others during this difficult time because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure welcoming Francis Osborne, Managing Director of Pristine Scotland Limited, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be welcoming England's 1966 FIFA World Cup Patrick hero Sir Jeff Hurst onto the programme. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City among other clubs, but he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition, and that came after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I do hope that you all enjoy listening, just as much as um, we're looking forward to hearing Sir Jeff Hurst's views, and that is coming up just now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want him to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, 
I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've off, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same 
union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. 
And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you're able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. 
And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house, somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are, uh, completely two-footed than I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He... he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season 
around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls up and not just tipping balls out. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see myself. I was, I was a very disciplined, 
a person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if you wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time for the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I, was, I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, yeah, so I think it's... I think the, 
that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is. I don't know being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career and I think I, I went into business for 20 years I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably for those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.